Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. This morning, uh, my name is Scott. I'm one of the elders here. And we're still preaching on First Peter. We'll be in chapter 3, beginning at verse 8 through 17. Now, 50 years ago last night, I was sitting in my parents' living room watching TV, as many of you might have been at that time. And we watched Neil Armstrong step off a lunar craft and make that first footprint on the moon. After that was over, I remember walking outside on a beautiful, clear summer night, looking at the moon and being absolutely amazed at what had just happened. Several months ago, there was a film that came out on Apollo 11. And about the same time, I read an article about that, and it made the comment that what I'm holding in my hand here, my cell phone, has more computing power in it than was used to get that space capsule on the moon and back. And again, I was amazed. A month ago, I was outside Chicago at the Evangelical Free Church of America National Conference. I was gathered with 1,500 other pastors, church leaders, and missionaries from around the world. And again, I was amazed, but for a completely different reason. Sitting in the audience where we essentially had two worship services a day, singing praises, praying, and listening to a message. I sat among fellow pastors, some of them whom I recognized and knew, And I watched as they, throughout the worship time, were texting, working on their laptops and their iPads. Again, I was amazed. Three weeks ago, I'm in Dallas with my wife visiting children and grandchildren, went to Tony Evans' church. And he was preaching on American idols, and that week it happened to be on the idol of technology. He was pretty blunt, pretty straightforward, But I was amazed because sitting in front of me was a mother with a 10-year-old son who through the entire service was playing a video game. And the woman sitting next to me probably sent and received a half a dozen texts throughout that service. Idols have entered into the church. And I've seen them here at Compass. If you've, I noticed my wife and I never sit in the same place when we're here at church on Sunday morning, and every time I have sat next to someone who is using an electronic device, a piece of technology to as their Bible for the message, I've watched them when that little buzz or that little ping comes through, check their text or send an email or respond to it. And I might be thinking, oh, Scott, you're being a little bit snarky here this morning, aren't you? Um, But as I recall the attributes of our Heavenly Father that Molly had repeated at the beginning of the service, I have to point to at least one that she forgot. It's found and stated pretty bluntly in Exodus chapter 20, where our Lord, our Heavenly Father, says this, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous 
God. Now, there's two sides to God's jealousy. One you want to be on, and the other you don't. Bringing idols into a worship setting is not the good side of jealousy, of God's jealousy. So if you're struggling this morning as we get ready to go to the text, and you can't resist that ping or that buzz to go check something else, then let me encourage you, just turn it off. And if it's really, really tempting and you really can't resist, maybe bring it up here, lay it on uh, the platform, or give it to the person behind you to give wait and give back after the service. Now, you might be wondering, well, what in the heck does this have to do with First Peter? Well, First Peter is a letter written to Christians that are struggling to live a life of faith in a hostile world. And usually when we think of a hostile world, it's out there. It's Islam, <clears throat> it's technology, it's culture, it's, it's something out there that's attacking us and creating a hostile environment. And yes, it is all of that, but Peter recognizes it's a whole bunch more. It's something much bigger. It also includes the hostility that is within us, the hostile world that we as sinful human beings have to deal with day in and day out. And he acknowledges that back in a previous text from chapter 2, verse 11. This is what he has to say there. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against your soul. That sounds like a hostile world, and it's not outside. It's in me, and it's in you. So we're headed towards our text, but just as a, to fill in a little bit of uh, context, Peter began writing his letter. He, he does so in laying out the theology of our faith. And then he, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, he um, stresses the importance of submission uh, for, for those who are struggling to live in a hostile world. How important that is within different contexts of family, church, and within the world. And then he begins the end now to kind of start to wrap up his letter um, by teaching us and showing us how to live by faith in a hostile world. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. And so we head to that text and we see where Peter starts off saying, Finally, all of you. Now I have to stop here because who does he mean by you all here? Well, it's those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is kind of in a nutshell. But he, he spent a lot of time describing who you all are in, verses, in chapters 1 and 2. So let me just do a quick survey before we get to the rest of our text. Chapter 1, verse 1. Well, you all are exiles. You're elect, the elect of God, verse 1. You're born to a living hope, verse 3. You're people with a tested and precious faith. You have a joy that is inexpressible, and your souls have been saved, verses 8 and 9. Hopefully your minds are sober and you're prepared for action, verse 13. And we're not, as God's people, conformed to our ignorant desires, verse 14. We're holy, 16, ransomed, verse 18. Then we get to chapter 2, and we are people who have tasted the Lord, and we've seen that it is good, verse 3. We're living stones being built into God's holy and precious building. We're holy priests, verse 5. We're a chosen race, royal priesthood, royal priests, holy citizens, and we live in the light, 
verse 9. We have received mercy and we have a new and specific identity, verse 10. And finally, verse 11, we're sojourners, aliens. So finally, you all have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but circle that and underline the rest of verse 9. On the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then Peter is going to, in verse 10, paraphrase part of Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let them keep their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, there's this interior environment, honor Christ the Lord is holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, but when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And this is the word of the Lord. Just about every translation I looked at, and I only went through about a dozen of them, give a little subtitle or a little heading to this section of Scripture. And it's generally something uh, along the lines of suffering for doing good. And, And Peter certainly makes that clear in our text, that we can expect trouble if we're zealous for good, that we might experience suffering for for living a righteous life, that if we defend our faith and hope that we have in Jesus as Christ and Lord, that we can expect to be slandered, reviled, and, and even shamed. And while all that's true, Peter really, I think, presents something much bigger, much more important here, and that is verse 9. He acknowledges, do not repay evil for evil and reviling for reviling, because that's what the world does. That's what we're, we're tempted to be drawn into. But on the contrary... Bless, for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. I believe this is Peter's plan for learning to live a life of faith in a hostile world, which I want to look at just a little bit more from verses 13 through 17. Again, I surveyed about a half a dozen sermons on these verses, and you would usually read or hear something like this, to kind of launch the sermon, or somewhere within in the context, you would you would hear this. I've never been threatened with imprisonment or torture for my faith. I've never had my property confiscated or my, or my my family torn away from me because of my commitment to to Jesus. And that's true, and that makes kind of First Peter sometimes this distant teaching that, yeah, in case of emergency, I'll break that glass and I'll, I'll read what Peter has to say in the context of 
living in a hostile world, but frankly, all we really experience right now, which is just as powerful, is ridicule, pressure, and intimidation when it comes to proclaiming Jesus Christ. And I would argue that both elements of hostility, the intimidation and the pressure and the ridicule, accomplish the same thing as outright violent persecution. And it's not really about what happens to me and you. It's what happens to the good news of Jesus, to the proclamation of the gospel. It isn't lived out or it isn't proclaimed. And that's the real crime here. But Peter, in this text, is offering us a way to navigate our lives of faith in a hostile world. And it's back to verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now when Peter wrote this letter and sent it to the churches, and this was read within the churches, the Jewish believers there would have immediately sat up and said, ooh, I think I know where Peter's going with this. Because they would have remembered the teaching that was given to the original exile, the original sojourner, which was Abraham. And we find that, that teaching, that truth in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This is God meeting with Abraham, giving that original covenant with Abraham. And there we read that, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make, you a, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this theme runs uh, throughout the Bible, but again it's stated specifically in Genesis 26, verse 4, where God says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars, as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Peter's telling us that in God's overall plan of redemption, that there is this desire on his behalf to bless us, but to bless us so that we will be a blessing to others, even in a hostile world. And Peter then lays out four observations on how to be a blessing in this hostile world. And the first observation he makes is that we will be a blessing when we connect with others. To be a blessing and to share in God's blessing always takes place within the context of relationships. If you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you became connected to other believers both for, for now and for eternity. You're going to be connected with them in eternity, all of them, some you haven't, haven't even met yet. And so now that we're connected in this thing called the church, the church is then called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so others will surrender and connect, and the church keeps on going until Christ comes again. We repeat this cycle over and over again. How to be a blessing in a hostile world happens within the context of relationships. The Apostle John said, put it a little more bluntly. He said in his first letter, If you say that we love God, if you say that we love God, but hate our brother, we are liars. 
Because if we do not love our brother whom we have seen, we cannot love God whom we have not seen. Blessing takes place within the context of relationships. Second observation Peter makes is that we will be a blessing if we turn from evil, pursue peace, and do good. Again, verses 10 through 11, Peter's quoting and paraphrasing Psalm 34, which says that if we want to flourish in this life, if we want to be blessed and and be a blessing, we've got to do something with our lips and with our lives, something that results in healthy and blessed relationships. Then, verse 12 says, God's blessing will be upon us. But if we don't live like that, the contrary is true. The face of the Lord will be against us. And I would say that's just about as bad a place to be as to be on the wrong side of his jealousy. Because implicit in verse 11 is the truth that we are all by nature or have this natural bent towards evil. In fact, the word evil is used five times within this paragraph. And it's not referring to evil out there. It's referring to the evil, well, of living for ourselves in disregard of God and in disregard of others. It's pretty pretty pointed there. But it's not just enough, Peter says, to turn from that evil. He said we must also actively do good and pursue peace, peace with others. In other words, peace won't happen if we're indifferent or, well, passive about it. It's something we need to go after with intent and with passion. It needs to be a driving force, a core value within our lives. So it happens in the, in the area, in the context of relationships. It, it, blessing in a hostile world happens when we turn from evil, pursue peace, and do good. And thirdly, living a life of blessing is defined by five attitudes and actions in verse 8. Peter says, first and foremost, we need to uh, have an attitude of of harmony or to be harmonious. A harmonious person seeks to get along with others. They're not self-willed. They're not demanding their own way. And they're not judgmental of those that don't go along with them. They're a team player that considers another person's perspective and gives gives a little room for differences. They accept people as Christ accepts them. But let me just add a little warning because that's kind of a catchphrase that has come about today, that God loves everyone just the way they are. And that's absolutely true. But what's also true is he loves you too much to let you stay that way. People who are harmonious, well, they know the difference between biblical absolutes, which must not be and cannot be compromised, and the gray areas, the areas where, well, there's a latitude for some differences. They give people time to grow, realizing that this life of faith is a process. In the words of Augustine, on the essentials, unity, on non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. But please keep in mind that it is mutual submission to God and his word that becomes the crucial foundation for this harmony, for this unity of mind that that Peter is presenting here, whether it's in the church or in the home or in the world at large. Secondly, we should have the attitude and the action of being sympathetic. This is entering into someone else's feelings. It's rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, Paul says. We're to be sensitive to how others feel, 
to be sensitive and wonder what would it be like and to contemplate what would it be like to be in their situations. And I admit that this is the biggest struggle that I have of these attitudes and actions that Peter's presenting. But he also calls us to have the attitude of brotherly love or to be brotherly. This simply points to the fact that when you follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're members, we are members of the same family. But Peter's also saying we must be able to show brotherly love to those outside the family of God since we are all created in the image of God. And then our fourth attitude and action is to be tender-hearted or compassionate. Uh, the word originally f- referred to our, the, the physical presence the, uh, in our human body of the bowels. It's, it's, a, it's a gut thing, something deep within us. It, it refers to a deep and intense emotional um, response. And Peter, that's what Peter is using the term here, to, to, to refer to a depth of concern or a compassion that we have towards others. So if being sympathetic it refers to our commitment to know how others are, are feeling and doing, well, to be kind-hearted refers to an emotional response to that situation and the state of others. And then finally, we are to have the attitude and action of being humble in spirit, and to me, this is, this is hugely important. The, the quality of humility is the recognition of our weaknesses, our shortcomings, and our limitations. But it also recognizes our strengths and our gifts. But what it recognizes is that these all are a gift of God. It knows that these strengths have come from God. Paul has some, something more to say about this humility how it manifests itself in our lives. To the Romans, he wrote, Be of the same mind toward one another. and Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And then to the church at Colossae, he wrote, And so, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then Peter has one final observation in regard to, uh, well, living a life of faith in a hostile world, and that has to do with the relationship between being a blessing and receiving a blessing. Just a little caveat here before we continue. Um, There is absolutely no way if you survey the whole counsel of God's word that you can equate riches and material things as a sign of God's blessing. They may be, but if that's your criteria, you're missing the point of God's teaching and God's word. Scripture offers some more poignant and I think important uh, reasons for why we should be characterized by this grace of blessing. The first is, is that it's consistent with God's character. That's repeated throughout the Gospels. Secondly, it's consistent with our praise of God, something James makes very clear. And in our text today, Peter gives us yet another reason, and that's because it's consistent with our destiny. Look again at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And then here's the phrase, for to this you were called. 
It's our destiny, something we've been called to, so that we may be a blessing to others. The logic here is simple. We've been called to inherit a blessing. And if we are to live consistently with that calling, well, our lives should be characterized by the fact that we are blessing others. Peter's teaching throughout this text rests on the same principle. Our future destiny, which is heaven, being with God in glory, should influence and direct our present conduct so that my future destiny, your future destiny, is the driving force behind your present-day conduct and behavior. And because our future hope, well, is that of blessing, God promises to bless us, our present relationships should be characterized by being a blessing to one another. Again, we usually think of a hostile world as out there, this great epic battle that we will have to engage in at some point. You know, if, we, if you're a doom and gloom person, you see our culture crumbling and you know that day is coming, or you're, you're fearful of the threat of Islam. But Peter doesn't want you to want you to wait till then to cultivate a life of faith and a, live, and a life of blessing and being a blessing to others. He wants it to happen in the simple everyday dealings of life, to be well prepared in the simple things. So I close with a story this morning of how this, I believe, works out. It's not some epic battle. It's simple, the simple battle of learning to be a blessing and see God's blessing in the simple areas of day-to-day life. So I share with you the story now of Robin Lee Shope. She's a self-confessed garage sale junkie. And she writes of her experience. I parked in front of the house that was holding an inside moving sale. The front front door was open as if urging, come in and buy my treasures. As I wandered through the house searching for hidden gems, I found a case under a pile of old bedspreads in the back bedroom. Inside was a shiny saxophone, beautifully engraved with the figure of a woman. It was vintage, in pristine condition, and mine for only $20. Unfamiliar with the going rate of, for instruments, I called my husband Rick to do a quick eBay search. And here you might be thinking, well, why didn't she just get out her, her smartphone and check herself? This article was from 2008, before the, the, the widespread use of smartphones. So she contacts her husband. He looks up on eBay Because she's thinking, uh, no way could I afford to end up buying another white elephant to store in my shed. It was crowded enough. I heard Rick's fingers typing, and then silence. There aren't any listed, he said. Odd, I thought. It seemed to me that someone should at least have one saxophone for sale. You sure? Not one, he said. I ended the call, worried. I was $20 uh, poorer and the proud owner of a a shiny saxophone that might not sell. What did I know about musical instruments? The only thing I could play was the radio. And as I was leaving, an elderly man stopped me. Can I buy that saxophone from you? He asked, hopefully. I'll give you $20 more than what you paid. 
I was thrilled. Not only would I recruit my twenty, recruit my twenty dollars, but I'd make twenty dollars, and with min minutes of my purchase, I viewed it as God's unexpected provision, a blessing. Later that day, I sat at my computer <clears throat> and I pulled up my, or pulled up the eBay homepage, and I entered the type of saxophone that I had owned for less than five minutes, and to my horror, three exact matches popped up, all selling for over five hundred dollars. Rick! I wailed, pointing at the screen. Look! He wrinkled his nose. Oh. You said there weren't any saxophones listed. I felt weak. I was losing consciousness, she said. Well, that's weird, he said. When I looked, there weren't any listed. Suddenly, I realized the problem. Rick hadn't gone to the eBay homepage. He'd gone to my seller's page. Of course, I didn't have a saxophone listed. I had an enamel coffee pot with no bids, a sunbonnet girl quilt with no bids, and a primitive cabinet also without a bid. I had sold the sax cheap. God wanted to bless me abundantly, but I'd blown it. It was as someone had snatched the money right out of my pocket, and I'd let it happen. It was done, finished, no chance for a do-over. Yet, she says, I couldn't let it go. Late at night, I sat sleepless, angry with myself for harboring ill feelings. My brain kept replaying the moment I sold the sacks while that bitter little voice whispered that the old man had probably pawned it. I felt envious, consumed by greed and guilt. And God was revealing a side of me that, well... I had known existed. Now right there, you might remember I read a verse at the beginning, chapter 2 from Peter, where the desires of the flesh wage war within us. That's just what she was going through. A bitter little voice, angry, consumed by greed and guilt. But the story goes on. Robin says, I opened my Bible to Galatians 6 and read, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Next, she said, I turned to my concordance to verses on praising God and made note cards of ten verses. Each time I thought about the sex, I lifted my arms, praised God, thanking him and quoting scriptures like, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 I was amazed, she said. How my turmoil fled, leaving behind pure happiness. It set me free, and once more my life became enjoyable. I even let Rick off the hook so that his life became enjoyable <laughs> as well. What you saw, see now with these two paragraphs is she turned from the evil that was welling up inside her that wanted to do war with what was good and right. And she instead, instead, she pursued and sought after peace and what was good. Story doesn't end there. A few months later, she says, I was perusing a garage sale. I spied my sax buyer hunched over a box, sifting through old sheet music. Feeling that old twinge of regret, I pretended not to see him. But he recognized me and cheerfully called out, Hello there, have you found any treasures today? No, she said. 
And as I turned to walk away, he caught hold of my arm and said, I want you to know that because of your spontaneous generosity, I rekindled an old passion for the saxophone. Being retired, I now volunteer to teach kids how to play. And he wiggled his fingers over the keys of an invisible saxophone. It was then that I noticed his frailty, his worn clothes, and his scuffed shoes. And suddenly I understood. I thought he'd stolen my blessing, when in fact he was my blessing. If we don't practice it in the simple day-to-day things of life, we will never learn to be a blessing and we will never know the full extent of God's blessings on our life. And as I close, let me just add a little bit of an encouragement slash warning here. When Jesus first came and walked this earth, he was given the opportunity to, to, to be judge, to judge those that followed him. But he declined it. Instead, he came, he said, not to judge, but to save. Jesus came to earth to bring God's blessing of salvation to those that hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And the sad reality is, is that, well, there are those who reject God's blessings that are provided in Christ at his first coming and at the cross. What they face, those who reject it, well, when Christ comes again, he comes as judge, and they will face that judgment. Which then compels me to ask you this morning, have you entered into Christ's blessings that have been provided in Christ Jesus at the cross? If not, I'm, I'm seriously urging you to do so today, to see me when this service is over, and let me show you where the real blessings come from. Because the present promise of blessing for those who believe is also accompanied by a word of warning for those who do not. You see, the fact is, is that we have been blessed, well, we've been blessed to be a blessing to those in this world. And may God, well, may God give us the grace to understand and apply these truths from First Peter in our world today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you give us this wonderful, tender um, title to, to come by, this relationship that we can engage in. But you are so much more. And as a great God who has done great things for us, um, our souls should be thirsting after you to sing your praises, to sing how great you are. And Lord, the marvel is, is that we are blessed each and every day with your great faithfulness. May that stimulate us to, well, to do good, to seek peace, to be a blessing to others. And I pray and ask that on us in Jesus' name. Amen.